don't just look at IQ. First, you know, there's different types of intelligence here. There's verbal intelligence and there's nonverbal intelligence. And we look at memory and also look at their socialization skills and, and their communication skills and their emotional skills. everyone, Nathan Long here, president of Saybrook University. Welcome to another episode of Saybrook Insights. My guest today is Saybrook alumnus, Dr. Drayton Patterson. I must admit, I'm thoroughly excited to meet someone like Drayton. He comes from the sports world and has evolved in his career to be a major supporter of mental health and well-being. Among his credits, he served as director of mental health and wellness former board member and ambassador for the Association of Professional Ballplayers of America. He's a professional speaker, psychologist, and best-selling co-author in The Road to Success with Jack Canfield, also uh, of the book Unchain Your Brain. He's currently listed as one of the 10 best psychologists in uh, Chicago by Thumbtack, and he's also the first PhD psychologist to sign a player's contract and manage a professional baseball team in the Mid-America League and Minor Leagues. He was also a baseball scout for the Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau and Texas Rangers for seven years. And he was also a former sports psychologist for Toronto Blue Jays and Texas Rangers. This guy seems to do it all, and I can't wait, as I'm sure you can't, to learn more about his story. All right, let's get to it with Dr. Drayton Patterson. Dr. Drayton Patterson, it's truly, truly my pleasure to have you on Saybrook Insights today. What a blessing, a privilege, an honor. All of the uh, superlatives, descriptions are are there and are heartfelt. Um, Listen, how are you today? How are things going for you? I feel very good. Thank you so much for inviting me, and it's a, a pleasure to be here. Things are going well today for me. Good, 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 good. Well, so so let's start with going all the way back. Well, maybe not all the way back, but maybe far enough back around baseball, because I know that's a huge part of your story. It's a part of uh, uh, your psychological and uh, emotional DNA. What's your backstory here? How did you get involved in the sport and where did it take you? Well, I, I started uh, as a child. Uh, I have an older brother who's five years older, and um, he really introduced me to the game. I remember when I was a real little kid, he would turn on the baseball game on TV, and I didn't want to watch it. And then we would go outside, and he would show me how to throw and hit and so forth. And I just really took to it quickly. And I really just became fascinated with the game. And um over time, I, I showed that I had some skill in the game, and I played you know, in the Little League and the Pony League and so forth, and uh, I just progressed, and I, I can remember I was a, a kid. I went to a family gathering, and somebody asked me, and I'd asked me, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a baseball player. <laughs> I said, oh. Oh, you'll change your mind when when you get older. I said, no, I won't. I said, that's what I want to be. So anyway, that's how I really got into it. And and when my skill set progressed, I saw that uh, it was not only something that I loved doing, but something that I was proficient in and something that I could possibly have a career in. So um, my mom and dad, uh, while I was encouraged to play baseball, 
they wanted me to do something else. They wanted me to prepare for something else because they said, you know, baseball players can get injured and your career might get short and we want you to have something else as a, a background. So that's when uh, my mom's as a teacher, she was a teacher and a former teacher of the year back in 1973 in Chicago. And uh, she was also a psycholinguist and she would talk to me. Uh, she really loved psychology, but she was a teacher. She was a grade school teacher and worked with kids and language issues. And she would tell me about the psychologists and how she had a good rapport with a psychologist. And she told me about school psychology. And that's when I first heard about it as a kid. And then, uh, of course, I, I progressed through baseball and, and I had all kinds of injuries. I had uh, the first injury I had was right before my senior in, year in high school when I tore my rotator cuff and I had uh, something called supraspinitis tendonitis, extremely painful. And I had to rehab my shoulder for three and a half years uh, before I could really pitch again. And uh, so I continued to progress, but uh, I really only got the, the speed. Uh, that, that I was able to throw when I was 16, 17 years old, which was close to 90 miles an hour. But uh, I still was never able to to get to the higher level that I would would have liked. So I had to learn how to really pitch, not just throw the ball. So I became an excellent pitcher. And uh, what I would find is uh, it would take my shoulder about seven or eight days to recover from pitching a game. And I might pitch an excellent game, but I couldn't do, I couldn't throw much of it or do much of anything. So uh, the different scouts would see me and they'd see me throw a great game. And then I would be invited for a tryout three days later and I wasn't able to throw the ball. I'd, uh, I, I couldn't throw smoke. I was more like a puff, you know, I was just throwing the ball 70 miles an hour or so. So uh, after numerous trials, I had trials with the White Sox and the Cubs and the Dodgers and the Blue Jays and so forth. And um, I, I began to see the writing on the wall, you know, things. Everybody saw that, that my shoulder was not going to hold up. And uh, at, at those days, you know, you, you would have to pitch every three or four days if you're going to be a pitcher. So I began to seriously look into another career. And I got myself a job. Um, I, I had a tryout with the San Antonio Dodgers back uh, in the late 70s, and uh, uh, that didn't work out. They were the double-A team of Los Angeles. So I came back to Chicago, and I got a job working with the Commission on Human Relations, and that was my first counseling job. I had already had my, uh, my bachelor's degree in psychology. I double majored in psychology and free dentistry. And uh, before I went, uh, I, I played briefly in Fort Lauderdale uh, when I was trying out with the Yankees. And before I went there, I took, uh, I was, got enrolled in the clinical psychology program at uh, Roosevelt University in Chicago. And I had taken a semester's uh, worth of, uh, of courses. And I did really well. I, I, I enjoyed it. I took uh, gerontology, psychology. I took uh, uh couple other a clinical psychology class, uh, a class in biofeedback, meditation, hypnotherapy, and I really enjoyed that. And I decided that I, I worked with the Commission on Human Relations, and I, I worked with a program called Project Girls. 
and uh, I was in the Cabrini area, Cabrini Green area in Chicago, which is a, a lower socioeconomic uh, area. Uh, it, you possibly have heard about it. It's got a lot of publicity over the years. It's torn down now, but uh, I worked with them. And um, what what I really began to see is that uh, that's when I really saw that we were more alike than we are different as human beings. And even though they, they had such a hard uh, upbringing and a hard environment, a tough environment to live in, you know, once I got to understand them and understand their life experience, I uh, began to, to find out, you know, utilize different ways to get through to them. It, it wasn't necessarily conventional ways of psychology that, that uh, you know, like a Sigmund Freud and, and so forth. I would just use different different things, anything and everything to help them solve whatever problems that were related to whatever human issues they may have. So shortly after that, uh, I decided uh, I was going to get in the business world. So I got a job working for Xerox Corporation, and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> I really hated it. Um, and, and no, no, I mean, uh, I love the people at Xerox, but it, it just was not for me. And uh, I, I worked that for six months, and then I went back to school and uh, decided I was I but wanted to dabble in, in, in psychology. I wanted to get take a couple more classes, which I did. But in the meantime, I got myself a, a physician uh, working in a psychiatric hospital as a mental health therapist. And uh, they hired me because my I had a bachelor's in psychology and I had hours toward my master's degree in clinical psychology. And I became a therapist. So at that particular time, I worked on a pediatric uh, psychiatric unit, and uh, I really enjoyed that, working with the, the little ones who had different uh, emotional and behavioral and social issues. Then I was asked uh, if I would become a floating, what they call a floating therapist, where I would work, uh, one day I might work pediatric, another day I might work the young adolescent unit, another day I'd work the older adolescent unit, the next day I might work the gerontology unit. So I, I thought it would be good for me. I agreed to it. And if, initially, I didn't want to do it. But I said, you know, this might be good for me to really see where I want to go with psychology. So I enjoyed that. And I, I did that for, for, for three years. And while I was there, interestingly enough, uh, I was still playing semi-professional baseball at that time. Uh, I wasn't playing professionally, but I would uh, play baseball in a day and I worked the evening shift. So a lot of times I would come to work at four o'clock and I would still have my baseball uniform on and the different patients would see me and they would always ask me different questions about, uh, you know, what do you got a baseball uniform on, you know, and I would tell them what I, what I did and they were so interested. And uh, I got an idea. I had talked with my mom about it and I said, you know, they're so interested. The patients are so interested in my in my baseball career. I, I think that there's a way that I could utilize my career and, and help them uh, with their uh, baseline behaviors that cause them to be admitted to the psychiatric hospital. So um, my mom helped me with the proposal. I, I, I wrote a proposal and I uh, submitted it to the uh, the powers that be at the hospital, and they accepted it. It's called the Baseball Therapy Clinic. So what I did was I, I utilized uh, 
one of the, one of the things that allowed them to work with me in the baseball clinic or play with me and that, cause I, I called it play, uh, was they would have to be, uh, on a certain level. Um, most of the units were on a level one, level two, level three. Uh, if you're on level one, you really weren't focusing on your, uh, treatment plan. And, uh, Two, you were you're doing pretty good. And three, you were really doing excellent. Well, anybody who came to the baseball therapy clinic would have to be at least on level two. So we had a, a number of depressive patients, a number of aggressive patients, and uh, they just weren't focusing on, on their issues, but they wanted to come and be with me. And I, and I would tell them, I would go and talk with the whole unit. I said, listen, I'd love to have all of you here, but you're going to have to focus on your, your baseline behaviors and why you're admitted to the hospital. So anyway, it became a very popular program and, um, people, I would work with some elderly people who would just not come out of their rooms and they started coming, working on their program because people who were in my program in the baseball therapy clinic, they were, would come back to the unit and tell everybody what they did, how they, we would have a big gymnasium and we had a patio and we would go out and play and hit and throw and so forth. And they, the patients basically sold the program. Then the, the patients started working on their uh, treatment plans and they would move from level one up to level two, up to level three. When they got to level two, then they could come with me to, to the clinic and I would have a group of maybe 15 patients and we would pitch and I would hit them ground balls and they would hit and I would throw the ball and and it, it was very successful so then uh, uh after a while i decided i said you know i'm going to go back to school because i was especially with the uh, the pediatric and, and the adolescents i could see that they were exhibiting so many problems i, I would think what in the world is going on in the school system that uh, that uh, these problems have gotten to be so severe that these patients have to be hospitalized. So that's when it, I kind of went back and I thought about mom and she would tell me about school psychology. So I got into uh, enrolled in a school psychology program at National Lewis University in Evanston, Illinois. So uh, I was very successful at that. I got a fellowship and I graduated. Uh, it didn't take me too long to graduate because uh, a lot of the courses were dealt with uh, therapy. And of course, I had worked in a psychiatric hospital for three years. So um, I, I was able to, to get through that program fairly quickly. And I did my internship back in 1984 and 1985 as a master's level plus uh, school psychologist. And uh, then I just continued to, to, to work with different uh, students within the school setting. And uh, I, I worked with the Bureau of Child Study in Chicago. And uh, they liked the fact that, that I had a counseling background, that I had done counseling, uh, the individual and group and family counseling uh, that I would do on the weekends when the parents would come in to see the patients in the hospital. So uh, they wanted me to primarily not just administer psychoeducational evaluations, but they wanted me to do counseling with different kids who are exhibiting different uh, emotional and behavioral and social issues. So I, I did that. And then um, I, 
I was asked at National Lewis University, it was just starting a, a doctoral program in school psychology. And I remember the person who was the chairman of my master's thesis, I remember he told me that, he said, after you work as a school psychologist for three or four years, it's basically the equivalent of a doctorate degree in school psychology, because you would more than likely, you know, if, if you were working in a lot of different areas, you probably experience just about everything that you could be taught. And this was what he told me at, at, uh, at when I was in school. So I said, I said, even they were offering me a scholarship to, to get this uh, EDD in school psychology. And uh, that would have been nice. But I said, yeah, I want something more. I have more interest than just school psychology. So uh, that's when I began to uh, look into other schools. And that's when I came across Saybrook. And I came across the, the, the names uh, Rollo May and Stanley Krippner that I remembered when I was in, in University of Illinois, Chicago. That's where I got my bachelor's degree. And I re remember reading about these guys. And I went into it a little bit more deeply. And I said, you know, they, they really sound like they had the same perspective uh, that, that I have. Because as a school psychologist, um, I've always looked at people very holistically. Uh, the, the kids that I work with, as well as the families, I not only, uh, and the, the students in particular, I, I measure their uh, cognitive ability. Uh, and it's not just uh, a lot of times when I evaluate a student, the first thing a teacher will ask me, well, what's their IQ? And it, it's not just so simple. We don't just look at IQ. I look at, uh, first, you know, there's different types of intelligence. There, there's verbal intelligence and there's nonverbal intelligence. And we look at memory and also look at their socialization skills and, and their communication skills and their emotional skills, how, how they view themselves, what their self-concept is. And once they, I know what their self-conception is, I want to see how, how, what their self-esteem is, how they feel about it. Is it positive? Is it negative? And, and so forth. So uh that's one of the things that really attracted me to to Saybrook is this is one school that really seems to agree with the way I feel about things so that's when I um, that's when I decided that I said I'm just going to take a course here and, and see uh, if I like it so I, the so I just took one course and I um, it was with Dennis Jaffe. Oh, my. Yeah, it was Dennis Jaffe, and it was on um, family therapy. And I had done a lot of family therapy uh, uh, with the patients when I was at uh, uh, Ridgeway, now it's known as Hartgrove Psychiatric Hospital in Chicago. So I, I really enjoyed that with Dennis. And uh, that's when I decided, you know, I, I'm going to enroll. So one thing led to another. I, I enrolled and I just uh, fell in love with it. I had some really great professors. Uh, Susan Hales, who's one of the top people in the, the field of self-concept and self-esteem. I learned a lot from her. She was the first person who, who uh, introduced me to uh, uh, Jack Canfield's work and uh, who I later have, uh, have, have worked with. I just, uh, I just really uh, enjoyed my time uh, at Saybrook and, and learning from the different professors that I took courses with. And what was really meaningful for me was those uh, when I would have to go in for my residencies at Saybrook, 
and, and meet with the different teachers and, and just really talk to them face to face. And, and uh, we would have classes and uh, I would just follow through on a lot of the things that I was interested in uh, within the school setting. I, I dealt with a lot of students and a lot of teachers who had stress-related issues. So I really began to, uh, uh, after, after graduating from Saybrook, I, I really followed up on a lot of the things that I learned from Gene Octoberg and uh, different classes I had taken in biofeedback and meditation and hypnotherapy and so forth. So I went to Saybrook, I enjoyed Saybrook, and then I began to utilize some of the skills that I had but again, I saw that I needed or I wanted some more skills. So I, I went ahead and I, I got my uh, certification in hypnotherapy and, uh, and I was able to utilize that to some degree. And I just continued to do different things, different things that would, would help me in, in my career as a school psychologist, as well as help me when I work with the, the parents and, and the teachers of the students that I was working with. At the same time, uh, school school in Chicago, I was working in the Chicago school system at the time, and schools would begin in September, and they would let out in June or early June. So I would have a lot of time. So uh, during this time, I, I was signed as a scout. I was a Major League Baseball scout with Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau. I worked with them for five years. Uh, and that was in the, the in the eighties, and this would be right after work. I would uh, school would let out at two thirty, and then baseball games in high schools and colleges would start around three thirty, four o'clock. So I would leave one job and I would go to the next. So and and that was baseball. So I I really enjoyed assessing the the skill level and so forth, and and uh, in my uh, again, I was still using psychology uh, as I assessed the uh, the athletic prowess of these baseball players. And I would see some of them, they would be very talented, but I would see uh, a lot of bat throwing, a lot of arguing with coaches, a lot of arguing with the uh, their teammates and their opponents. And I would put that in my reports. I would have to write reports on their athletic skill and their baseball ability, but I would put, I would make notations about, you know, it seems like this, this athlete is not very coachable. And that really counts against you because obviously as you progress through baseball, things are going to get tougher. You're going to have to learn. And uh, if you're not coachable, if you can't get along with teammates and so forth, uh, there's going to be a problem. And, and baseball is a business and it's a monetary investment in the athlete. So if you've got somebody who might have some good skills, but he has some uh, difficulty with his interpersonal relationships, uh, there's going to be a problem. So um, I worked with the scouting bureau, Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau, for five years. And then um, uh, I had an opportunity to uh, work uh, with the Texas Rangers as a baseball scout. So I did that for two years. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, I was contacted by the Texas Rangers. They knew I was a psychologist. And one of their players in the minor leagues was having some um, some issues. 
some uh, behavioral, social, emotional types of issues. And they and he lived uh, not too far from Chicago, and they asked me would I work with him. I said, sure. Uh, they said, he's got a lot of talent, uh, but you know, he just will not uh, talk to, they had a psychologist, or they sent him to a psychologist or psychiatrist, and he wouldn't talk to them. So I worked with the young man for a while, and uh, he really had some some severe issues. He needed medication, and he would not take medication. But I did my best with him. Unfortunately, things didn't work out. And uh, but they appreciated what I did and uh, they could see that I had been working with him. And uh, next thing I know, uh, the former pitching great uh, Sam McDowell, Sam McDowell was uh, the psychological expert with the Texas Rangers at that time. He's a, a substance abuse counselor. Counselor uh, Sam was a, a alcoholic or he is an alcoholic and uh, Thank God he was able to beat that, and uh, it, it shortened his baseball career. But he was, if you know him, he's Sudden Sam. And, uh, you talk about throwing smoke. I mean, this guy threw around 100 miles an hour, and uh, he was just a great player. But uh, now he uh, he had a group of uh, psychiatrists and uh, himself, and uh, his, his son was uh, a mental health counselor at the bachelor's degree level. And he told me that uh, they needed a psychologist. And he, he said, you would be great because we have so many players who are young. You're a school psychologist. And as a school psychologist, uh, I've worked with children as young as three and adults as old as, you know, in their 30s. Because I, I, I was also, uh, I was the evaluating psychologist at St. Xavier University in Chicago. So I was used to working with uh, children, adolescents, and adults and uh, a lot of immaturity and uh some of the players uh you know they might be making a couple million dollars a year but if you're 21 22 years old you come you never step foot in college and and you, you just haven't learned certain things in life and, and uh so, some of their their uh coping skills were, were inappropriate and uh, they were doing some things that they shouldn't do so Sam thought that I would be a really good fit with the, the Rangers as well as uh, the Toronto Blue Jays. We had two organizations that we provided psychological services for. And um, and we also had a psychiatrist who would uh, step in and provide uh, medication and therapy for, for those those players who, who may have needed. He was the, the Dallas Cowboys psychiatrist at that time. So anyway, I, I work with them, and I just kind of pr progressed as time went by. Um, uh, I left uh, my full-time job that was uh, as in the Bureau of Child Study uh, in Chicago, and I decided that there were so many teachers and parents that I work with who had stress management issues. I uh, started, uh, I, I left my full-time uh, job as uh, in Chicago, and I started my own practice, and I founded the, the Stress Reduction Clinic in Chicago, and that's when I really utilized a lot of uh, Gene Achterberg's uh, work on the, the meditation and the deep breathing and the biofeedback and and muscle relaxation and, and, and just uh, counseling and and just utilizing, uh, in my perspective, what 
humanistic psychology is. Uh, I don't think humanistic psychology is any one tidy definition. You know, it, it just it's uh, it's encompassing of so many so many different things. So uh, so that's what I did. I started the stress reduction clinic in Chicago, and I I did that for a while, and it seemed that. Uh, I got some opportunities to do some other things. Uh, basically, it was pulling me back into school psychology. At different schools, they needed my services. And uh, different uh, faculties needed my services. So uh, I was looking at the different issues uh, that, that students were exhibiting. And it went back to my work my research that, that I did at Saybrook and uh, self-concept and self-esteem enhancement. Interesting. Yeah, which is, again, it's, it's all a part of the humanistic uh, approach. So um, I, I would work with my, my particular uh, dissertation and, and my, my self-esteem enhancement uh, and prog program involved uh, developing a sense of security and a sense of identity and a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, a sense of personal competence, a moral pro-social behavior, decision-making skills. And I would begin to, to, you know, I would do workshops and in services with faculties and work with different children and their parents on, on these types of issues. And, um, last, uh, Toward the end of my career, as working as a working full time, um, I had an opportunity to work with. Uh, I, at first, I I worked with. A, they asked me to work with a child who was really cutting up bad in the school, and his parents were very uh, not very cooperative. And they asked me would I come in, and they had a multidisciplinary staffing conference, and would I. Uh, read the psych psychologists uh, that they had hired results or would I be there present with that psychologist to kind of re uh, to interpret uh, some, some of the psychologists they're, they're just kind of cold and and very clinical and and uh, that's not my style at all you know I, I just talk to people like they're human and just break, just break things down and let them know say look this is what this is what the problem is. And that was really successful because the parents uh, were very combative with the school before I came and I was able to resolve that issue. It's just like the old thing from, I don't know if it was The Godfather or some old movie. They say, if you give me an offer, I can't refuse. I won't refuse it. <laughs> so so the school district offered me, made me an offer and I said, you know what, you know, this will this will not only enable me to get a pension, but but or increase the pension that I had in Chicago, but but um, I can I can do basically do the kinds of things that I like to do. Not only the counseling and the therapy and working with teachers and, and so forth, but I can uh, put in a little bit of my self concept and self esteem research and, and so forth. And um, I had come across that once I, I got hired uh, with them, I had uh, a friend or uh, I'll call her an associate, uh, Sharon Robinson, Jackie Robinson's daughter. Uh, she uh, began a, a character enhancement uh, program called Breaking Barriers, uh, really named after her, her what her dad did back in the 40s when he broke the color barrier in baseball. 
And again, here comes baseball back to me again. So uh, I've met with Sharon and I, I talked with her and I, w- I wanted to get her program uh, breaking barriers in the school district that I was working in. Well, uh, I'll just say the, the school district didn't want to use that program. Uh, and uh, they said, well, do you have any other character uh, building programs? And I said, yeah, I, I said, I have another one that's called Character Counts. And so uh, they, I, I presented that to them. And for whatever reason, they like Character Counts better than they, they like Sharon's program. So what I did is I went back to school and I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that long, but I, I, I did have to become certified as a trainer. So I became a trainer with the Character Counts program. And that was a uh, Character Counts was established in 1992. 1992 is when uh, I passed my orals at uh, Sabre, uh, October 1st, uh, 1992. Wow. So, uh, Anyway, I, I looked at uh, Josephson's program, the Character Counts program, and again, it, you know, it, it's encompassing a, a lot of the things, uh, what I feel are humanistic uh, values. And it's, it seems like a lot of schools, they, they don't want to get into really talking about teaching morals and values and so forth. But the way the Character Counts program did it or does it, is that they focus on uh, traditional uh, character traits that uh, just about every human being wants to have. And uh, it focuses on um, one of them is trustworthiness. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you're 35 years old and, and uh, at Joliet Penitentiary, you know, you, you want to be around people that you can trust. And so that's a basic value of whether you're on the penitentiary yard or in you're in the, the, the school playground, you want to be around trustworthy or you want to be somebody who's known as being, being able to be trusted. And then it goes into uh, having a, a sense of responsibility. You know, you want to be thought of as responsible, whether you, it doesn't matter what age you are. So these are just essential things that, that just, human qualities that everybody wants, trustworthiness, respect, the golden rule, responsibility, uh, fairness, being known as a fair person. How many times do you hear kids say, that's not fair, you know, that's not fair. Well, you want to be known as somebody who's fair. And uh, another one of the the character traits that that I focus on is uh, caring, just showing caring towards another human being. It can not only help somebody else, but it when you see that you do something that's caring for somebody else, it makes you feel good about yourself. And again, that's your self-esteem. That's how you feel about yourself. And uh, self-esteem is based upon competencies. And you have an actual competency like, hey, you know, I did something kind for somebody else. I happened to see something on uh, television, on the news uh, last week or the week before last. It was about uh, a little boy who uh, was 10 years old. And he knew his next door neighbor, uh, the little girl had brain cancer. And uh, the mom and dad were constantly in the hospital taking uh, the little girl to, for treatments. And uh, the, the family uh, uh, of the ill child, they were known to have just a beautiful backyard, just, uh, just impeccably grass was cut and trimmed and the flowers and all the weeds were pulled. And this little kid noticed that, that their grass was growing long and 
And he knew the little girl and he knew the family and he wanted to do something to help. Well, he decided that he was going to cut their grass. He would cut their grass every week. He didn't, he very rarely saw them because they were in the hospital all the time. But they noticed that, that their grass was being cut and their weeds were being pulled. And he would just simple things like this that, that, that just are, are humane, you know, just uh, human values, uh, the trustworthiness, respect, responsibility, fairness, caring, and just being a good citizen. You know, it, it encompasses a lot of things. So, so I got an opportunity to, to do a lot of things that, that I felt uh, encompass what, what I view, my personal view, and this happens to be, uh, I, you know, I, I never really thought of myself as being humanistic back when I was 20 years old or 22, 23 years old. But when I began to learn more about Saybrook and, and what they stand for and what they do, I said that this really, this really uh, speaks for me and speaks to me. So that's, you see how my life is just kind of weaved back and forth between baseball and psychology and, and, and the, the self-concept and self-esteem and, and these, the self-esteem program. I, I had hoped that I was going to be uh, able to get my uh, self-esteem uh, enhancement program that I developed when I was at Saybrook, I was hoping to get it funded. And I wanted to be one of those programs like Robert Reisner and Jawanza Kanjufu, who got their self-esteem enhancement programs that are in different schools. But uh, it didn't work that way. It costs a lot of money and, <laughs> and uh, people really have to have a, a lot of confidence in what you do. But I'm fortunate that I was able to uh, to do what I did, and uh, when I have an opportunity to speak to people, I, I do speak professionally from time to time. Uh, things have slowed down uh, since the um, since the pandemic, and um, the Zoom calls. I, I really never felt really great about the Zoom calls, especially when you're speaking with an audience of people, a large audience. It just really seemed to be detached. It's hard to feed off that energy, right? I mean, you don't have, yeah. Well, you know what, when, when I speak, I move around. I like to walk <laughs> around <laughs> and I, I, I like to be on my feet and I like to just look at every, every part of the room and, and I spend time speaking with this part and this part and I just walk back and forth and it, and it just, for me, I, I just wasn't as comfortable with it, but uh, I, I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable with it now. And and possibly I will accept some of those opportunities. You know, that, that those are the kinds of things I've done. In in the meantime, after I, I retired from my my full time position, I, I wanted to retire early, and from my full time position and uh, and pull down my pension. And I said, you know, I can just supplement it. I said I've been doing this long enough, so I, I said somebody might want to pay me to <laughs> pay to hear what I have to say. So, uh, so I did that for a while, and I was pretty successful doing that. And particularly, I, I I retired from my full time position in 2015, and uh, I began to uh, look into speaking professionally. And I was doing some of that, and um, uh, the agent that I had told me that. Um, or asked me, would I be interested in uh, something that Jack Canfield was doing? And I said, yeah, Jack Canfield. Yeah, I've, I've, I've read about him. I've never met him, but I've, I've read about his work. And and I even think I, I've alluded to some of his work in my self-concept and self-esteem work when I did my dissertation. 
And uh, she said, well, he's looking, uh, he's, he's uh, developing a book uh, with uh, different people from around the world uh, on uh, what they feel is their particular role or what's really important to being successful in life. And uh, the name of the book, she told me the name of the book would be The Road to Success. And uh, would I be interested in contributing uh, a chapter? And I said, I said, yeah, I, I said, that sounds like it'd be great. You know, if, if, he, if he'd be interested in having me, I, I'd be interested in writing it. Yeah. So uh, that's how that started. So I went ahead and, and I wrote that and I touched on a lot of different topics from the goal setting, uh, setting goals, uh, smart uh, smart goals, specific and, and uh, attainable and realistic and so forth and so on. And uh, I talked about a little stress management and in that particular chapter, and it was really well received. You know, it was uh, on the number three, uh, number, made it to number three on Amazon.com. And from that, um, uh, a bodybuilder, uh, Ava Diamond, uh, she's a professional bodybuilder, and she was in the midst of writing a book. And she asked me, would I want to get involved with, with her and what she was doing? And this dealt with careers. Uh, being uh, passionate about your careers. And I remember, I think I took another class with Dennis and he, he, I think it was around the time, uh, do you remember a book that he wrote, uh, with take, t- take this job and, and love it. Yeah. Take this job and love it. Well, uh, this, this book focus on uh, the name of the book is called Unchain Your Brain and how to pursue your goals, dreams, and aspirations with purpose and power and persistence. And, and so I talked with Ava about this and, uh, cause she, she's a, a therapist, but she's also uh, a bodybuilder. So, uh, anyway, I, I, I contributed to that book and off of those two books, along with the different things that I've done in, in school psychology and in sports psychology and working with professional athletes, I would get opportunities to speak. Sometimes it would be different companies or, or hospitals. Uh, I did a stress management class with a group of uh, a gynecology interns and uh, about stress and burnout and uh, different things to look for and, and taught them different stress just really basic stuff. Uh, a lot of the things that I do, I, I think are basic and I, I, I try to make them uh, as easily attainable for people to accomplish. Uh, just simple, the, the deep breathing, muscle relaxation, uh, guided imagery, visualization, just taking yourself to a, a just a, a calm, quiet place in your mind, just having that peace but at the same time, I, I think it's important for us to to be introspective. And, and um, as uh, my my lady Deidre, she she uses the term. Uh, she's a psychologist as well, and she talks about introspective housekeeping. And it, it's really important uh, whether you're you're five years old and you're throwing a block across the classroom and you and you hit somebody in the head with it. You know you have to think about the consequences of your behavior. You know and what right and wrong is, uh, and whether you're an adult and, and doing something that's really inappropriate. So yeah, I, I try to get people to to become more introspective 
and uh, so they can help themselves because I do feel that, that no matter what your limitations may be, whatever your deficits or weaknesses might be, that you have the ability within yourself to overcome that. And But uh, a certain amount of being introspective and a certain amount of uh, knowledge about the different things I spoke about earlier, you know, the, the different character traits, different character qualities, being respectful people uh, and, and responsible and so forth and so on. I, I think people have to, to look within themselves. And uh, I, I think one of the major problems that I've seen uh, with people has been that sense of moral integrity. And uh, the sense of moral integrity is basically uh, a person's satisfaction with their own view of what right and wrong is and what is moral. And uh, the way that's really evaluated is the congruence between the way they be actually behave and what they actually believe. And what we find is so many people, they know what's right and wrong. They know what the moral thing to do is. However, do they exhibit those same qualities in their day-to-day life? And, and I've mentioned to so many people throughout my career is you can lie to me, you can lie to your spouse, you can lie to your parents, you can lie to your teacher, you can lie to your coach. It doesn't matter who you are. But when you get in that bathroom and you close the door and you look in the mirror, you can't lie to yourself. And you have to live with yourself. And, and what I'm finding is that People might not actually admit, like, you know, I really am teed off with myself because I've done this, that, and the other. But they have a, they don't have that feeling of peace within. And um, they, they may, on the outside to, to me and you and everybody else, they might look like they're a very successful individual. But uh, when they think about how they became a success, what did they do? Uh, a, a friend of mine used the expression, uh, he's the kind of person that'll put a snake in your pocket and then ask you for a match. <laughs> they, they, they may be successful, but uh, they, they might step on a couple of necks and heads to, to reach up that ladder to get where they, what they think is successful. And they might be an administrator or president of this or, or, or that, or a manager of a ball club or whatever, but how many people did they cut down to get to where they want to be? And again, it, it just comes to that inner peace and, and, and feeling comfortable within your own self, your own self-concept, what your conception of, of your own being is and, and how you evaluate, which again is your self-esteem. And I just see, I see so many ills in the world today that uh, I feel are caused by the, uh, this uh, very poor self-concept and a negative self-esteem. Well, Dr. Patterson, in my, I've done several hundred interviews, literally, in this space. And at no time in my work on the podcast has anyone, I have never had the kind of guest who has literally answered every single question I had in my mind and on the paper, <laughs> like as soon as you were like, I was going to say, and then about, but then you went right into it and covered this or, or all the various things that you're doing, have done, how it ties into humanistic psychology. You are just 
incredible and uh your background oh, thank you um oh it's it's all true I, I could listen to you literally all day long you have um clearly so many gifts and talents i <laughs> very impressed and i'm hoping we can uh get to spend more time together because i think uh we there's a lot of opportunity uh to get your work out there even further in the world your mind out there in the world uh even more than you already have and you've impacted hundreds and thousands of lives already it sounds like that's very kind of you uh sometimes i think i get a little bit long-winded but uh it, it's it's just uh, i've been very blessed to have the life that, that i've had and Strangely enough, uh, when, when we talk about self-conceptions, and I always use the term my mind's eye, and my mind's eye, still, when I close my eyes, I see that baseball cap. Always do. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Obviously, I'm a psychologist, but uh, I just kind of view myself as a ball player who was blessed enough to be able to do some other things. For sure. For sure. Well, we we unfortunately have to close out today. That went quick. <laughs> it really did. It really did. But let me let me ask you a couple final closing questions, and these are real quick takes. So, your first response, and you already did a really great job of explaining humanistic. But today, if you can, uh, as we go out, and I ask this of every guest, what does the term humanistic mean to you? Well, I think I may have mentioned, uh, I don't think that there's a like a short and tight definition. When I think of, of humanistic, I just say it, it being humane towards my fellow person, belie- believing in, in, in people's ability to overcome whatever limits or obstacles that they may have in their lives, whether they're self-imposed or, or whether they may be born into a certain situation. And, and their ability to to self-actualize, to uh, uh, attain their goals and their dreams and their aspirations. You know, that's why I, I talk so much about goal setting. Uh, when You know, I, one thing I didn't talk about, I, I managed uh, uh, in the minor leagues. And uh, when, when I managed in the minor leagues, you know, I, I set up with my players. Everybody had a goal. You know, we just didn't get out there and just, hey, let's play baseball. Yeah, you know, see, you're a professional. You're a professional baseball player now. You know, what is your goal? What do you want to accomplish? And what I found is that, that so many people, and it's not just the ball players I work with, but the, the children and the teachers and, and the the people in corporations. You know, some people tend to set their goals so far in the future that uh, when when you set, it's good to have long term goals, but but when you only have long-term goals, it, it seems so unattainable because it's so far off. So I, I, I work with people on uh, setting short-term goals. Humanistic, being humanistic, it just encompasses just about everything uh, that, 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 that I, that I am, what I stand for. And uh, with the being able to human beings, being able to overcome uh, their obstacles and being able to self actualize or realize dreams and goals, aspirations to, to be introspective, to look within and, and be honest with themselves and, and look at their, their own self-conception. And, uh, you know, if their self-conceptions are, are, are not positive, well, you know, what, what can we do to make a change? 
And then that goes back to when I talked about that character counts and the, the trustworthiness, respect, responsible. I, I had uh, one of the last therapy sessions I had was with a, a, a young woman and uh, she was trying to make a decision. Well, is this guy the right guy to marry? And it was kind of funny. And I said, well, um, let me ask you this. I said, first of all, I, 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 this is just me. I, I, I think I've mentioned to you before about uh, my affinity towards animals. I said, first of all, I, I want to see how a person treats animals. As they say, some may say the least of us, uh, somebody who can't fend for themselves. How do you treat an animal? And then uh, I, I asked them, well, how do you treat a child? How does he treat children? How does he treat elderly? And then I go into, tell me this, is this person trustworthy? Can you trust him? Is he a respectful person? Is he respectful towards you? Is he respectful to your family? Is he respectful towards his family? Is he respectful to people when he, when he takes you out to dinner? Is he responsible? Does he do what he says he's going to do? Does he just leave you hanging sometimes? And 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 that that sense of responsibility for well, one thing I found with, with working with children, uh, unfortunately, uh, particularly in, in families that uh, where the parents are divorced, uh, responsibility is a, a big thing for them because uh, one of their parents may promise to come and visit them. The parent that's they're not living with will come and visit them or take them out or spend some time with them. And a lot of times on Mondays in, in the school setting are pretty rough days because unfortunately we have a lot of broken families where, where uh, the kids may live with dad or live with mom. And, and over the weekend, mom or dad was supposed to come and take them out for pizza and take them out to a movie or just spend some time with them. And they, they were no shows. So this is, does not show a sense of responsibility, and that really makes it click with the kids. But uh, as I mentioned, this young lady I talked about, I said, is he trustworthy? Is he respectful? Is he responsible? Is he fair? Is he caring? Is he a good citizen? So I said, these are, are just basic values and basic qualities that, that you would want a mate to have. And uh, only you can answer this. Is he is does he exhibit these qualities? And are you comfortable with spending the rest of your life with somebody who does or doesn't have these qualities? So I said that's a decision that you have to make. I can't make that decision for you. You have to make that for yourself. But again, you know, you have to be honest with yourself and and and, and introspective about you know. Is this the kind of person that I want to have in my life? So anyway, that's being humanistic. Uh, that's that's uh, not an easy thing. I, I would like to see what it says in, in a dictionary. You probably have a whole uh, page on, on humanistic. Well, one of the reasons we ask that question is I think everyone brings their own flair, perception, and understanding to it. And your answer was as beautiful and as uh, thorough as anyone else's. And I think you've done a fabulous job. I'll share with you at some point, we're going to put a book together on that very topic of all of our guests and what they've shared. That would be great. Yeah, I think it would be cool. I'd like to read that. Yeah. 
Well, unfortunately, our time's come to an end, Dr. Patterson, but you have just been a phenomenal guest. Thank you for your time today. Uh, to our uh, listeners, you can find Dr. Patterson on the web. You got to check out these books. I actually just ordered up my Amazon editions of the books that you have. I found them, so they're easy to find. Great stuff. Great job today. Thank you so much for your interview on Saybrook Insights. I appreciate you inviting me and, and thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Patterson. You're welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Dr. Patterson. I hope you all enjoyed Drayden as much as I did. If you want to see the YouTube version, please visit our Saybrook YouTube page. And if you'd like to support the podcast, go to Apple iTunes and leave that five-star rating and review. And subscribe so you can get episodes as they come out. If you're on Spotify, leave that five-star rating and make sure to follow us. You can, of course, subscribe to us on most major podcast platforms, including Google, Stitcher, Pandora, and, of course, many others. Remember to check out our show notes for information on today's guests, including links to websites, books, and the like. For more information about our university, go to saybrook.edu. Click on Areas of Study at the top of the page and locate the program of your choice to learn more. Or simply Google Saybrook University. That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next time. Take care.